You're listening to a sermon podcast from Church at the Gates, where we desire for real people to meet the real Jesus and experience real change. We pray that God might use the next few minutes to draw you closer to Him. Open up your copies of God's Word to Romans 10. Romans 10. We're going to read a large portion of Romans 10, and it's not going to be on the screen. So if you don't have a Bible, uh, you don't have one on your phone, or you don't have one in front of you, uh, you can grab one of the, in the chair back in front of you, page 551. It'll be right there. We're going to read uh, basically 17 verses of Romans 10, and we're going to get into our sermon in just a moment. But I'm going to ask uh, you to pray with me as we invite the Lord to do work in our hearts today. God, we, uh, we need you this morning as we read your word uh, and we see your love for the lost. We see your love uh, for the people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Lord, would you, uh, where it's necessary, God, would you convict us of indifference towards the lost? Would you convict us towards disobedience towards the lost? Would you encourage us in obedience? Would you, uh, God, would you change our hearts to yearn after the things you yearn for, to, that our hearts would beat like yours would for those who don't yet know your son? God, I just pray uh, as we talk about this, there can just be this tendency, even in my own heart, God, to feel guilt and shame and, and Satan would love to disrupt what you would have. And so God, I just pray that you would, uh, God, that you would keep Satan uh, and his demons, and God, those who would, who would tempt us to not believe these things, to obey. Out of here, God, would you protect your people? Would you charge your angels concerning this church and your word? Would you change us today? Amen. I want to ask a question. It's going to feel like a gotcha question. It's not, but it also kind of is. But I'm in the gotcha as well. When was the last time, I want you to think, when was the last time you shared the gospel with someone who doesn't know Jesus yet? When was the last time, and I'm not even like trying to parse out, like, did you hit these three things? Did you, I'm just, when was the last time in a conversation with someone who didn't know Jesus, when's the time that you shared who Jesus was to you? That you shared what Jesus has done for you? That you shared even why you follow Jesus, why you go to church? When was the last time you shared the gospel? Has it been longer than a few days? Longer than a couple weeks? Longer than a few months? Years maybe? If you, if you said, you know, it's been longer than six months, 70% of the people when surveyed, 70% of Christians said it's been longer than six months since they'd shared their faith with someone who didn't know Jesus. I find myself in that. I've, I've had interactions with people who don't know Jesus. I've, I've had people over dinner, I've done that. But I, when I look back at the six months, I can't think of one conversation where I shared the gospel. Various reasons. We look at that, and, and as we think about this, there's a number of reasons, really good reasons, at least internally, why we wouldn't share the gospel. We're afraid right? 
We're afraid of what to say. And maybe if we bumble over this, they won't hear the gospel. Our imperfect words, we don't quite know what to say. You might say like, I don't know what will happen to me. Uh, So much, if you think about like the gospel in in, in the workplace, uh, I wonder how much of the gospel has gone unproclaimed because we're afraid of HR or personal improvement plans or whatever else follows that. Might lose a a raise or a promotion. We're afraid that we might be rejected by family or friends. We, we've got these, these people in our lives who we love, who are part of our identity, and to lose them would be significant. For them to reject us would be deeply hurtful. Close friends, childhood friends, family, brothers, sisters. Maybe we don't want to lose our reputation. We, we don't want to be one of those Christians. Maybe we'd say, you know what, someone else, someone else will do it. Someone else will do it. Someone else, it's the bystander syndrome where we're all watching with a cell phone hoping someone will share the gospel with somebody. Or, as is the case in all of our lives at some point, maybe uh, there are sinful attitudes. Maybe we just, honestly, maybe we just don't care about the eternity of those around us. Maybe that's not even something we think about. We go through our days and are relatively unconcerned or, or un. Um, you're unconcerned about those, the, the people in our lives that are headed to a crisis eternity. Maybe we're just not willing to be a part of the mission of God. We just say, listen, I get it, but I'm real busy and I've got things I'm doing and money I'm making and status and whatever. Or maybe, and I would say all of us fall at some point, is we live dual lives. And what I mean by that is like who we are on Sunday mornings looks different than who we are on Monday through Friday. All of us have some disconnect. We live as if there are sacred and secular days and uh, to Christ they're all sacred. And so like, like, what is it? I think about this. And like, what a bummer of a way to start a sermon, right? I just, I just think it's worth asking though. Not, not for like some guilt. But like if, if this is what Jesus has commanded us to do, this is part of our sanctification, part of our discipleship. Why doesn't it happen more often for myself? Why doesn't it happen more often for us? I want you to, to think about someone in your life. Uh, for most of us, when we talk about uh, people in our lives who we want to know Jesus, right? Uh, we can think, or the Holy Spirit puts on our life, I mean, this is someone in your life that I've put you near. It could be a family member, it could be a friend, coworker, classmate. Who is the person in your life that you are burdened for? That you've prayed for? That you've pursued? You know, think about that person. What would it mean to you to get a phone call tomorrow and the person on the other line is your good friend or your family member and they said, I've given my life to Jesus. Or if they're of a certain generation, they just text a thumbs up emoji, Jesus. Like what would it mean? What would it mean for the people that we've labored for and pursued and that our hearts are burdened for? For many of us, our hearts are torn for the lost in our lives. And a lot of us, like we've almost given up hope. We've shared the gospel. We've paid the price. And we're just, man, I just don't know that they're going to come to know Jesus. I don't even know that's possible. I just, I can't hold out hope. And so today I wanna, I wanna look at Romans 10. I wanna zero in on Romans uh, uh, 10, 14 through 15. I want to ask, like, what if there was a way that God had designed for, our, for our, our loved ones, our friends to come to know Jesus? What if God had created a mechanism by which the gospel would go out and people would be saved? So I can promise you, if you've been in a church 
for a year or six months, none of this sermon will be new to you. I don't have new things. And as your pastor, I want to encourage us with what God has written and that is still true. Romans 10, follow along your copies of God's word. It will not be up on the screen initially. Uh, we will use some of that. But Romans 10, 1 through 17, your copies of God's word. Verse 1. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. This is Paul speaking of his Jewish brethren. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteous based on faith says, but the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend in heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend to the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Verse nine, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with a heart one believes and is justified. And with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. For scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the, same, for the same Lord is the Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. Verse 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him in whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed and heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. I want to zero in on, on verses 14 and 15. I want to just tease up those four questions Paul asks, this, this logical kind of progression. I want, to, I want to tease those out briefly and then four at the end, four straightforward applications if we, can, if we can get there with enough time. Question number one from Romans 10, 14 is how will they call on Jesus? How will they call on Jesus? Romans 10, 14a. How then will they call on him in whom they have not heard? We have to ask the question, who is Paul talking? about. Who is the they? Verse 13 says this, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It is helpful here just to realize that when, when Paul is quoting this, this passage, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. There is no limitations or exceptions to that promise. That is to say, that text does not say, listen, only white middle-class Americans may call on the name of the Lord and be, and be saved. It does not say, Bitter rooters only may call on the name of the Lord and be saved. It does not say only Republicans or only Democrats may call on the Lord and be saved. What Paul says here is everyone without exception, every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every, uh, every man, every woman, every child, anyone who calls on Jesus Christ is saved. Paul asked the question though, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed. Paul's saying, listen, how can they call 
on Jesus for salvation if they don't believe in him? The answer is they can't. Like we live in a world saturated with bad self-help, life hacks, and, uh, and counseling focused on making oneself better and more desirable. Do you know the counseling industry is a $34 billion a year industry? I don't think counseling is bad. My wife and I go often, and it's helpful. I don't think self-help and life hacks are bad. I think they're really helpful. All, all I'm here to illustrate is the world knows there is a problem with themselves. Humanity understands there's a problem. Doesn't understand the extent of it. Doesn't understand how, how far it goes. Doesn't understand a solution for it. And so it claws around your friends, your family, my friends, my family are, are blind and in the dark, grasping on to whatever they can grasp on, holding and believing and calling out to this to save me. If I go to counseling or if I do this life hack or if I have this pattern or if I eat this or I don't eat that or I live this way or I get this much money or I have this reputation, I will be whole, I'll be saved. I'll be satisfied. No kidding. The world grasps on these things that cannot hold them. They're blind people in the dark looking for a solution. It's, it's exactly what Paul says in Acts 17 to the Areopagus, to the Stoics, philosophers. Like, God has revealed himself so we don't have to grope around in the darkness. Humanity knows it's broken. That's why it needs help doesn't know how bad it's broken, and it doesn't have a solution. If Paul were rephrasing this for us, he'd say, how can people in Missoula call out to Jesus for salvation if they don't believe in him? How can the lost in Missoula call out to Jesus for salvation if they're being told, if what they're being told is to call inward for themselves? Paul's whole point here is that people will not call out for salvation to things they don't believe in. They will call out, to, they will call out for salvation and help only for things that they believe in. Question two, how will they believe in Jesus? How will they believe in Jesus? Paul continues his thought. He says, how can they call on someone they don't believe? And then how can they believe on someone uh, that they haven't heard? Romans 10, 14b. How are they to believe in him in whom they have never heard? If they can't call out to Jesus for salvation because they can't believe in him, how can they believe in someone they've never had preached? Pastor Stuart Briscoe, he was a pastor of a large church in Wisconsin, Elmbrook Church. Uh, he, he said this uh, of unreached people, of the people who don't yet know who Jesus is. He said, the unreached populations of the world are a scandal to the name of Christ and his church. A scandal the unreached populations of the world. If you're not familiar with that term, it's a missiological term. It's a missionary term. Unreached people are people that exist in the world today who have never heard the name Jesus and have no access to anyone who knows the name Jesus or has a, has a, a Bible in their language. They are completely isolated, have never heard, and will never hear in this lifetime. There are 7.8 billion people in the world right now a full 40% of the world is unreached. 3.2 billion people have no access to the gospel. 3.2 billion people have no access to the man that we worship, 
nothing in their own language. I say that. I say that because we live in a relatively privileged society. We have, uh, and I mean that in, in like the best way, we have churches where everyone have churches. We have freedom of speech, and many of us have grown up understanding who Jesus is, or at least had access to them. Three point some billion people have never heard and will never heard, never hear. The problem isn't a problem of location. You can, like if you want unreached people, just go to Target. Go to Albertsons. The problem is that after 2,000 years, 69% of the global population is headed into a Christless eternity. That's when you, that's when you tally up everyone uh, who has never heard and everyone who is into religions that, that, that are false religions. Less 70, uh, 69% of the world is headed into a Christless eternity. 70% of, 77% of Missoula's population are non-religious or religious apart from a Christian. There's 77%. Almost 8 out of 10 of the people you meet in Missoula are headed to a Christless eternity. You don't have to go to Africa to find an unreached people group. I'm good with it. You should go to Africa. We are the richest generation of Christians in history. We are the most educated generation of Christians in history. In your, in your palm, on your, you, can, you, can, you can listen to sermon podcasts. You can uh, watch YouTube videos on how to share the gospel and how to defend the gospel. You can, you can buy a plethora of Christian books. We have more access to tools, training, and encouragement than any other generation of Christians. I guess what I'm saying is it is, it is, is mind-blowing and should at least bring us some sobriety that in the age of the richest church, in, in, the, in the history of the global church, the most equipped church in the history of the global church, these numbers still persist. Why do they persist? Because they can't call on people they don't believe, and they can't believe if they have not heard. Paul's question is, how can they believe in a person they've never heard about? The answer is they can't. Our neighbors can't believe in a Jesus they've never heard of. Our kids can't believe in a Jesus they've never heard of. People in Sudan can't believe in a Jesus they've never heard of. Students in Korea or farmers in Kenya can't believe in a, in a Jesus they've never heard of. Uh, I had this neighbor in California. It was the first time I'd experienced this. I grew up, uh, my dad was a pastor, and so everyone I knew was a Christian, basically, or at least as a young kid, it felt like that. Uh, and it, it never occurred to me that there were people, I'd never encountered one, who when I talked about Jesus, they were like, I don't have any concept for what that even means. My kids and I were, were walking to the park in California. We were walking with some friends of ours, our next-door neighbors, two neighbors away. Uh, Christine was her name, and Skylar was the little boy's name, and they were playing. And Eli was singing a song about the Holy Spirit. He loved to sing Seeds Family Worship. And he was singing a song about the Holy Spirit. And Christine goes, what's the Holy Spirit? I'm like, what do you mean? She's like, well, I don't know what the Holy Spirit is. And then, you know, being like a seminary grad, I'm all like, well, let me tell you about the triune God and this and this, like... <laughs> She goes, oh, hold on. Who's Jesus? The lost and the perishing in our lives cannot call out for salvation for someone they haven't believed in because no one's told them. The lost in our lives are gonna call out to anything else in their lives, anything they hope they can believe in, anything they hope can give them status or, or security or salvation. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? Question three, and how will they hear of Jesus? 
How will they hear of Jesus? Romans 10, 14, see. And how are they to hear without someone preaching? So Paul, again, he's continuing his argument. How can they call on someone they haven't believed? How can they believe on someone they haven't heard? How can they hear if no one is preaching? And most of you hear the word preaching, and you say, well, let's let the professionals do that. That's what that means, right? That we'll just bring them here and let the professionals, we'll set them up and the professionals can knock them down, right? When we hear preaching, we tend to limit it to what happens on Sunday morning, whoever stands behind this pulpit. Or, but what is preaching? What's what Paul's talking about? It's, like, it's when you and a friend have lunch together and talk about Jesus. It's when you and a coworker go out for coffee and talk about Jesus. It's when you write an email to a family member telling them about Jesus' love for them. It's when you answer questions about faith with a friend. It's exactly what Billy Graham did for 85 years, but it's exactly the same thing you do with people in your lives when you tell them about Jesus. When Paul envisions this, that uh, being sent leads to proclamation. He's envisioning, remembering Matthew 28, 19, and 20, where Jesus says to his disciples, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you to the ends of the age. Here's the bad news. Jesus' plan for the expansion of the gospel is you and me. I'm sorry he didn't do better. His plan for the expansion of the gospel rested initially on some ta a tax collector, some fishermen, and some assorted, assorted guys who would never have a job proclaiming anything. David Platt summed this up idea well when he said this, that about the gospel, about the proclamation of the gospel, the church is God's plan A. There is no plan B. Like if we're waiting for someone else to come and God to like have a more equipped version of us or a better looking version or a more eloquent, it's not coming. Reinforcements aren't on the way. This is it. We're it. We're it. Said differently, said theologically. God ordained that people would come to salvation only through the preaching of the gospel. I want to say it again. God ordained, he planned, set in motion that his big plan rested on you and me loving our neighbor enough, loving eternity enough to go and share the gospel that he might change their hearts. You have heard this said, preach the gospel and when necessary, use words. Nonsense. Use words all the time. Every time you get. Now, I, I want to be like, I understand the impetus of that. Christians should live as consistent as possible. And they should live lives that honor the Lord but a good life is not gonna be enough. Do you know why? Because Mormons, are they live really good lives. I've never met a Mormon I didn't like. Nicest people on earth. But their lives aren't gonna send people to heaven. Your life is not enough to send people to heaven. Your life is not enough to proclaim the truth. Why send missionaries? Why invite your neighbor to a meal? Why go to coffee with your family? Because this is how God planned it that he would put you and me providentially in places where, where he can use us the most, where people who are near to you but far from him would encounter a Christian and hear the gospel. And you may say, listen, I'm not a missionary. I'm not called to evangelism. I'm not an evangelist. I, I don't have that calling on my life. And that actually may be true, but you know what Jesus said to his disciples? Go. And if you're a disciple, that applies to you. So you may not be called, but you were commanded, which is worse, honestly. 
Not everyone is called to full-time missions. Not everyone's called to short-term missions. But the people of God are commanded to go and tell. One of the greatest questions each Christian generation has to ask itself is this. Will we become practitioners of our faith or merely observers of faith? Observers of faith read, listen, and then comment on the faith. They know a lot about it. Practitioners read, listen, and live out their faith. God has ordained that people will not be saved without the preaching of the gospel. If people don't hear, they won't be saved. If people don't hear, they can't be saved. How can they call on someone they haven't believed? How can they believe on something they haven't heard? And how will they hear if someone doesn't preach? Question number four, who will preach if no one goes? Who will preach if no one goes? Verse 15, and how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. And how are they to preach unless they are sent? You know, we started doing this thing a year or two ago, maybe, where at the end of the service, like we don't dismiss you, make a big deal out of it. Sometimes we fumble over it. But the idea is this, that you are not dismissed into the lost. You are sent with the gospel. This is what it, this means, that, that the, the people of God are always sent with the gospel. You are sent into the places where there are people who are near to you but far from the Lord. And so if Jesus commands us, Christians, church, we must go. We don't have an option. To not go or to delay obedience is sin. The lost in our lives will stay lost unless you go. The perishing in our lives will stay perishing unless we go. And look, you don't have to have all the right answers. You don't have to have all the right words. You don't have to feel confident in yourself. Jesus will help you because evangelism shapes you just as much as it shapes the other person. You might lose a friendship. You might, your family might isolate you. You might lose a raise or your job, but Jesus will never leave you. Christians, we must go and tell. You will be uncomfortable. You will be nervous. You will be unsure. I could... I could be up here for 50, 60 minutes and just preach about the gospel. I would never once be nervous. But when I'm like with someone who doesn't know Jesus, my anxiety goes through the roof and I can't string together words. And I, like, I feel so much pressure and I'm listening on every word and what do I say to this? And then like, I feel like when I talk about Jesus, it's, it's like a caveman would. Sin bad, Jesus good. And I'm not sure it's much better than that. My point is, my point is, obedience is not just about the outcome, it's how it shapes your faith in God. Are we gonna trust God enough to put ourselves in situations where we're gonna be uncomfortable, we may fumble around, but someone might be saved? At the core of obedience, of the going and preaching, is faith. It's the Christian saying, Jesus, I trust you enough with this relationship. I trust you enough with my fumbling words. I trust you enough with my job. I trust you enough with my finances. I trust you enough with my reputation. It's the Christian saying, I'm willing, I'm willing to reject, I'm willing to, to, to uh, uh, risk rejection for eternity. I'm willing to risk discomfort for their eternity. I'm willing to risk my job for their eternity. I'm willing to risk my reputation for their eternity. The sent people must be the preaching people. The preaching people preach to the people who hear and the hearers become believers and the believers become the ones who call out. Paul ends uh, verse 15 with this quote from Isaiah 52, as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. 
It's a fascinating picture because Isaiah is speaking to Israel and he's speaking to them about a time that's going to come after they're in exile where, uh, where he says, listen, you're going to look up at the mountains because the way it worked is couriers took the news uh, from place to place. And so you'd get the fastest guy you could. He'd hike up his robe, put on his good sandals, the Nikes, and just sprint right, with the news. And so the messengers were all, uh, were all done by people who would bring the good news. And so uh, Isaiah says, listen, there's gonna be a time coming, Israel, where Jerusalem's gonna be restored and you're gonna be out of exile and you're gonna say this, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. How beautiful are the feet of those who come running down the mountains and bring liberation and bring news of God's faithfulness and say, you're no longer in exile and, and Jerusalem's gonna be rebuilt. The Lord has freed you. Imagine if you would. A thousand robe-clad people sprinting down Mount Sentinel, streaming through Missoula, stopping on different corners, and all they're there to do is proclaim the goodness of God. And every, every part of Missoula, every street is covered. And all they're saying is, peace with God is possible. Jesus has made peace possible. Eternity with the Creator has come. Their feet, can I just be honest? Their feet would be nasty, right? Running down a hill, maybe a twisted ankle, maybe limping into town, maybe got ingrown toenails on, all the nasty stuff, right? Isaiah says, how beautiful are the feet. Not because the feet are beautiful, but because the message those feet brought, brought freedom. We often think about the risk and share the gospel, right? Could lose a relationship, could lose a job. We often don't think about what could happen. We share the gospel, they hear it and believe it. Now look, they're not gonna rise up and look at your feet and go, how beautiful are your feet? But they're gonna say thank you. They're gonna say thank you for coming. Thank you for not stopping. Thank you for enduring my scorn. Thank you for enduring my sarcasm. Thank you for enduring my isolation. Thank you for not giving up on me. Thank you for caring about my eternity more than I did. Thank you for pursuing me. Thank you for telling me I was a sinner. Thank you for telling me about Jesus. Thank you for coming and not stopping. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Everything has changed. Thank you. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. How will our friends hear if we don't tell them? They won't. How will our family hear if we don't go to them? They won't. How can your friends believe if they've never heard? They can't. How can your family believe if they've never heard? They can't. Two other real quick encouragements. Number one, uh, from verse 17. Our job is obedience. God's job is outcome. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Uh, what I mean to communicate today is our job is obedience. We can't change anyone's heart. That there's no magic amount of words or times or, or anything that, that, that can actually change a heart that God has ordained. Uh, he has, from before time, said this person is going to know Jesus and this one is going to know Jesus. And our job is to go uh, willfully and willingly into the world. Our job is obedience. His job is outcome. Your proclamation cannot change a heart. But God has purposed to use our imperfections for his glory 
and the proclamation of the gospel. So how are, people, how are people saved? People are sent, those people preach, people hear, they believe, and they call out. Salvation is of the Lord. Second important thing, God is patient and waiting. God is patient and in waiting. End of chapter 10. But of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. The testimony of the Old Testament with God and Israel is not, and we've said this before, is not a God who just flies off the hammer and just cannot wait to destroy Israel. It is a long-suffering father who looks at his children, gives them many opportunities to repent, sends them many messengers, waits thousands of years. And even now, even now, he held out his hands to a contrary people. Paul speaks of this patience as kindness. So as you think about the lost in your lives, moms and dads, as you think about your prodigal sons and daughters, God is not done holding his hands and arms out for your prodigal sons and daughters. He's not done. Not done. God is not done with your childhood friend. He's not done with your brother or sister. He's not done with your mother or father. He's not done with your coworker or classmate. God is not done holding his hands out like this to anyone who believes. The question is, are we done? Have we written off the people who have scorned us? Have we written off God? Have we written off and said, you know what? I've shared the gospel. I don't think it's gonna happen. And look, I'm not saying that's unreasonable. Sometimes you give and give and pray and pray and it seems hopeless and you despair. I'm just saying that's not of God, that's of Satan. That he wants to steal whatever momentum, whatever desire you have for the lost by convincing you that that person you love can't be saved. Have you given up? Have you lost the ability to hope? Have you lost the ability to imagine? Christians, we must go. We must go. The lost and the perishing in our lives need to hear the gospel. They will not come to know Jesus unless people come to preach. Four things to do. Four areas, four things to think about in application. Number one, pray. Number one, pray. Do not pray only, but pray. Do not go without praying. Two real quick prayers. This is easy, straightforward. Number one, pray. Jesus, open the eyes of their heart. Number two, Jesus, give me the words they need to hear. Simple prayers that encapsulate all that is required. Only Jesus can save, and our job is obedience, and it's gonna be imperfect. You're not gonna get it right. But Jesus has created the gospel proclamation that we would be shaped and that people who hear it would be shaped as well. So pray. I got this guy at the church here who um, he loves lost, like burdened for it. I was telling about his friend, and he loves this guy. And uh, his friend doesn't know Jesus and is going to die soon. And uh, this guy at the church comes, and he's like weeping. I don't, I want to get it right. I want to make sure I share the gospel right. I want to make sure. And this dude has already shared the gospel like 100 times with this guy. He's given him gospel books, and he's like, it's not enough. I don't. He's like, can I give him your number? I was like, I don't know this dude, but sure, fine. Like, what? Point is, God has used this relationship in this man to begin, to begin whatever process he's working in this man who's gonna meet him soon. We don't know. Our job is faithfulness. God handles outcome. I'm gonna talk about family just for a moment. 
moms and dads, your mission field, primary mission field, is the living room. Primary mission field. It's not your only mission field because you go to work and you're around other people, but it's your primary one. The most important thing, moms and dads, you could do. Pray with your kids, read the Bible, pursue them, bring them to church. John Piper uh, said this, the biggest stumbling block to a child in worship is a parent who doesn't. And I just think in general, more is caught than taught, right? Our patterns often reveal to our kids what we actually believe. Make sure your kids come to church. I say this to, to, to parents of like preteens and teenagers. Like, you sit, I often sit across and they say, I don't, like, my, my teenager doesn't want to come to church. What should I do? Well, you should bring them to church. How? The same way you make them go to school. You fight. I don't know what to tell you. You're going to have to want it more than they do. You're going to have to be willing to pay the price. It's not hard. You make them go to school. They hate that. I'm fine. I've told you this before. If your kid comes and sleeps, I don't care. Holy Spirit takes care of that. It matters. Your, your kids will not care more about the gospel than you do. This won't. I say this too. Good while I'm on it. Moms and dads, your job is not to prepare your kids for comfortable living in the future. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. But primarily, the world is really, really good at making sure we invest well and have safe jobs and are good to our husbands and wives and have kids. Like the world disciples that so well. So let me just offer this to you parents. If your child comes up to you and says, I really want to go to church, or I really want to go on this missions trip, or I really want to go spend more time with these Christians, leverage everything you can to do that. Do not quench the spirit in your children, parents. The world will quench it quicker. If your kid comes to you and says, I want to go on this missions trip, or I want to go to this retreat, or I want to go hang out with my Christian friends, do not quench what the Holy Spirit is doing in your little ones, in your teenagers. They don't know, but you do. Do not quench the Spirit. Have a meal. Have a meal. Our, our desire, you walk out, they see that wall of over 1,700 meals. Where we're trying to have 5,000 meals in five years. Like the whole desire is that we would leverage what we have for those who are near us but far from the Lord. They would say, listen, God has put people in our lives who, who may come over for a meal, who may enter our house, who, who may go on a hike with us and we share some trail mix with us, may work out with us, who, who may not come to church on Sunday morning, but will be part of our life somewhere else. And we want to be about that. Have a meal with someone. Take someone to coffee. Share the gospel. Finally, go. Go. You know, in, in August, we're going to go to Kenya and hang out with Pastor Peter. We're all going to make a mistake together. It's from his sermon. It doesn't make sense now because he didn't say it. So, Go to Korea in July. Parents of high schoolers, send your kid to New Orleans with Luke. He's actually down in New Orleans right now. I'm telling you, I don't... I'm not a parent of a high schooler, but I've been a high schooler. The jobs I had did not affect anything I do now. We often think more of summertime, like you could create a real impact with your kids. If you send them on a mission trip, or you go with them to Kenya, or you go with them to, like, impact in 10 days, this, you can't beat that investment. Remember the words of the prophet, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. Those are your feet when you go. Those are your feet when you go across the street. 
Those are your feet when you go into your break room. Those are your feet when you go uh, to your friends. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring the gospel of good news. The man is separated from God, but God sent Jesus while we were yet sinners to die on the cross, to rise from the dead, that we might have hope, might have salvation. We bring the gospel. God changes the heart, and they'll thank you for coming. They'll thank you for persisting. They'll thank you for not quitting. We're going to move here into a time of communion. And communion is is a chance for us to remember what God has done. When we think about salvation, when we think about the gospel, the gospel is this, that the man was created by God, man rebelled, ran from God, was separated from God. God sent Jesus, his only son, to live a perfect life, to die on the cross for our sins, atoning for our sins, paying the price for all of our sins, and then rose on the third day. Communion reminds us of the cost. Your salvation was free, but it was costly to Jesus. Our freedom came through the death of Jesus. So I just, as we think about this, like, don't take communion lightly today, Christians. We take communion twice a month. It's easy to get rote or flippant. Don't come to the table today with unconfessed sin. Don't, don't come to the table with resentment in your heart. So I want to give, uh, give you a few moments to get right with God. And we talked about evangelism today. We talked about uh, the gospel. Maybe, maybe some of us need to confess that we have just not cared about the lost in our lives. We've just not cared that people are headed into a crisis eternity. We're busy. <laughs> there are lesser things. Maybe we need to confess that fear has muzzled the gospel, that the gospel has not gone forth at our place of work or, or in our family because we're afraid of what might happen. Some of us maybe need to confess that like we were in the right place at just the right time and knew exactly what to say, we just didn't do it. Maybe today we need to confess that we've lost hope and ask Jesus to bring hope back to our hearts that he would save and redeem those who are near to us but far from the Lord. If you're not a believer uh, and you don't know what communion is, is an opportunity for those who are part of the family of God. And so I'd encourage you, if you're not a believer, to consider the claims of Jesus today that you were created, that you are sinful in need of a savior. And the only hope you have is Jesus. And that Jesus' death and resurrection are the only way to salvation. Today, if you don't know him, you can call out and be saved. If you're not there yet, that's okay. We would encourage you not to take communion. So I'm gonna come down. I'm gonna give you a minute, minute and a half just to pray. Time of contemplation. I'm gonna come back up and invite you to go to the different communion tables and we will take it together. But in this next minute, minute and a half, we encourage you, I encourage you to search your heart, confess what needs to be confessed, to come back to the table of the Lord, clean and forgiven. Thank you for listening to a sermon podcast from Church at the Gates. For more information about our church or to connect with us about what you've just heard, please visit churchinmissoula.com.